Well, good morning to each of you here this morning. I've been blessed so far in the service, and it's good to have each one of you here. It's a privilege to gather and praise God together and worship Him together. How do you describe something that you've seen or experienced to somebody who has never seen that thing or experienced that reality? It can be hard sometimes. How do you explain something to somebody that maybe you yourself don't really understand how it works? That's more difficult still. And really the only way that we can explain something to somebody is to relate to something that they do understand and they do know. Just last evening, I had this typed up in my notes before, but last evening, uh, Valana was trying to explain a food to me that I hadn't had. And she, the only way she could explain it was to try to come up with something that I did kind of have a sense for. Oh, it's kind of like a pumpkin something, but without the pumpkin. Okay, what do you have left? <laughs> uh, no, I kind of got the idea. It was, it was good, but that's the way we relate to each other. We, we build a bridge from where we understand, and, and we kind of go out on a limb, so to speak, into something we don't understand. And this morning... I want to talk about a subject that I feel like I do not have a very deep or very full understanding of, but it's something I think we need to look at together and God's Word speaks to. And I invite your attention to Isaiah 6 this morning. I want to talk this morning about the holiness of God in a message I've titled, Servants of a Holy God. You know, in in our day and age, and especially in the broader church, we hear a lot about the love of God, about the mercy of God, and about the grace of God. And those are all very real attributes of God. But I think sometimes we tend to forget just how, how unnegotiably holy our God is. Many of you are probably familiar with A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and I'm, I'm reading through that right now. But he opens that book with the sentence, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think that's a very accurate, insightful, and true statement the way we view God, the way we think about God and who he is, and the better we can grasp in our small minds an infinite creator, the better we'll be able to serve him. And the more uh, in tune with his will, we'll be able to live our lives. So what is, what is holiness, or if God is holy, what does that mean? 
And Merriam-Webster gives the definition of holy as something that is exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. And this morning I'm here to say that God is worthy of complete devotion. He's perfect in goodness and righteousness, and he's also the one who said, be holy as I am holy. So I'd like to look at Isaiah 6. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We'll be spending our entire time in Isaiah 6. And I'm just going to read the first verse here. And actually, before I do that, I'll just make a few background comments. So here, Isaiah, this is the year that Uzziah died. Uzziah is a king of Judah. It's a Israel and Judah are separate at this point. We've had several bad kings, a few good kings. Uzziah was a godly king. He had some downfalls as well. Um, He became king in Judah at age 16, and he reigned for 52 years. However, the last portion of his reign, he co-reigned with his son because kingdom's going well. He's building up Israel, he's reclaiming territory from their adversaries, he's making all these defenses in Jerusalem, these engines of war, the Bible says, and things are going really well in his kingdom. And he goes to the temple, and he, as the king, not a Levite, goes to offer incense on the altar. And the chief priest and 80 other strong priests, the Bible says, come and tell him, you can't do this. And God strikes him with leprosy. And so Uzziah is isolated for the last 10 years or so of his life because of his disobedience to God of entering into the temple and offering incense or attempting to offer incense. So that's a little background on Uzziah. Let's go ahead and read the first few verses here. And I don't know I don't know in this passage if Isaiah is is in a vision, if it's something else. The similarities here to Ezekiel when uh, he has a vision and John on the Isle of Patmos when he gets a glimpse of heaven. This seems like a similar situation. I don't know if it was a vision or not. But I do think that Isaiah saw things here as Ezekiel and John did that it really couldn't fully describe. You know, if you if you read Ezekiel and Revelation, the John and Ezekiel are using the best words they know how. I saw this thing, and it was like unto this, or it was similar to this. Really couldn't fully grasp and describe the awesomeness that they were seeing. And I think that's the same case here with Isaiah. Isaiah. 
So whether he got a glimpse directly into heaven, I don't know. Whether it was a vision, perhaps so. But at any rate, in the king, that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I'd like to just stop there and note several things. First off, we have God himself sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And we think about, again, in our small minds, we can't really grasp the greatness of God. But imagine with me a bride at her wedding, and this isn't maybe as fashionable at the moment as sometimes in history, but a a wedding dress with a train behind it. And now the, the length of the train is not proportional to the glory necessarily, but think about what would happen if a lady had a train of her dress that filled up this entire sanctuary. Okay, we'd think that's pretty ridiculous. But think about God being so great that just the tail of his robe fills up the entire temple. His train filled the temple. And above the throne stood the seraphims. We don't really know what the seraphims are. They're not really mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Some similarities to uh, Revelation 4 and what John describes there. They have six wings. There are at least two of them here. And these are celestial beings who are in the presence of God. It seems all the time. And even they are covering their faces with their wings at the holiness of God. We think of Moses in Exodus when he is on the mountain and he he talks to God and he asks God, God, can I can I see your face? Can I see your glory? And God says, "No. You wouldn't be able to stand it. If, if I were to show my face to you, you would die. Paraphrase, but basically God says, tell you what I'll do. I'm going to, I'm going, here's a rock. Here's a crevice in the rock. I'm going to put you in a crevice in this rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. I'm going to go past you and you'll be able to see my backside. You'll be able to survive that. In a rock covered by God's hand, seeing the back of God. And Moses comes down from the mountain after that experience. And 
what happens? Moses has been gone for a while. The people come to Moses, and then suddenly they say, Moses, cover your face. You're blinding us. Moses' face is shining. And it's, Moses' face is simply a reflection on a human's face of one brief backward glance at the glory of God. And it's too much for the Israelites. So is it any wonder that these celestial beings, these seraphims, cover their faces with two of their wings? I don't know why they covered their feet. I'm not going to speculate on that. But they're crying to each other and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And there are a few things I want us to notice here. One is, is the word Lord that's used here. If we look in verse 1 and you look at verse 3, your Bible, if it's like most English translations, will have different typography or letters there for those two words. It's a different Hebrew word. In verse 1, it's a capital L, lowercase o-r-d. In verse 3, it's all capitals for Lord. Verse 1 is is the Hebrew word of of Adonai. It's it's a title given to God. Probably the highest title given to God in the Old Testament. And in verse 3, it has the idea of of Yahweh, the, the supreme being. It's who God is. God is holy. We don't have kings and queens in our country here where we live. But I have a friend who's living in Ireland right now, and he, he met and shook hands with Prince Charles this week. Uh, I, I don't know the occasion, but um, it's kind of neat. But he wouldn't just walk up to, so he's next in line to the throne in England. Once Queen Elizabeth, who's 95, uh, is no longer there. But you don't just walk up to the queen and say, hi, Elizabeth. That's not proper. That's not respectful. No, if you were to walk up to her, you would say, your majesty, your majesty, the queen. And in the same way here, we're talking about a Lord, the the supreme being of the universe. David in the Psalms talks about, O Lord, our Lord. And those are the the two words there. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name. The supreme and holy God, the sovereign one, how excellent is your name. And so when the seraphims cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the supreme being of the universe. 
it's the, the most worthy name that they can call our creator God. Also in scripture, we don't think about this so much, but when we want to emphasize something, we might use bold or italicized or underlined text. Maybe we'll add an exclamation point to emphasize something. In scripture, when we see something repeated, that's additional emphasis. Think about rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's emphasis. That's repetition. But the only time in Scripture, the only, the only attribute of God that's repeated three times is the word holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holiness is who God is. Let's move on to verse 4. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me. Woe is me. I don't know what was going through Isaiah's mind at this moment, but let's try to put ourselves in his shoes for a minute. The book of Amos and the book of Zechariah both refer to an earthquake that happened during Uzziah's reign. We don't know when that happened. We look back at history and Josephus talks about an earthquake. Josephus' account would indicate that the earthquake happened when Uzziah was in the temple and was going to offer the incense. The earthquake happened then. There was a, a tear in the, in the curtain of the temple. Sunlight came through and beamed on Uzziah's face, and that's when he was struck with leprosy. We don't know that. That's history. That's not in Scripture. But we do know that there was an earthquake during Uzziah's reign. And so whether the posts of the door, whether the threshold of this place was an earthquake, whether it was just trembling at the voice of praise to God from these seraphims, I don't know. But if you were Isaiah and you had experienced an earthquake, and if Josephus' account is accurate, and that's when a king is struck with leprosy, We can't blame Isaiah for saying, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am destroyed. This is the end of me. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts, sorry, 
the supreme being over everything. No one who comes into the temple, no one who is in the Holy of Holies and is unclean makes it out alive. You, you can't come into the temple or tabernacle unclean. It's punishable by death. You would die. So you see the predicament, so to speak, that Isaiah might feel here. He's not worthy to be in the presence of a holy God, and he understands that, and he knows that. Have you ever been anywhere, um, maybe in a group of people or, or at work, or maybe you're traveling somewhere, and you're in a group of people, and you just look around the room, and you say, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't belong here. Everybody's who, everybody who's here is smarter than me or better at this task or sport than I am. I really shouldn't be here. We often call that imposter syndrome, and most of the people in the room probably are feeling the same thing we are. But Isaiah here recognizes that he does not belong here. How do we respond when we're in the presence of God, when we're faced with the holiness of God, when we get a small glimpse of who our Creator really is? Do we feel unworthy, or do we just live life and view Him as a friend? He's there when we need Him and don't pay much attention to Him otherwise. Do I recognize that I am surrounded and as a child of God, filled with a holy God who demands holiness, who is holiness, and requires that in his children? Are we changed when we see the King? the Lord of the universe. Hebrews 12, 14 says, to follow peace with all men, or pursue peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So all of us here this morning, we have two options in life. We can be holy, or we can die. Those, those are the only two options we have. There is no third option. 
And we can't be holy without God. We have two options in life, to be holy or to die. And if we're honest with ourselves and look at ourselves in our fallen state, and we know that we can't be holy with God, I trust our heart's response is very similar to Isaiah when he says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm destroyed, there's no hope for me. I'm unclean. Like the Philippian jailer, you understand the helplessness of your situation. and You cry out and you say, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is to believe. Verses 6 and 7 are such a beautiful picture of God's redeeming work in our lives. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongues from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and my sin purged. God's the only one that can touch our lives and purge us of sin. But before that can happen, we need to recognize and come to grips with our fallenness, our brokenness, and just how apart from him we are nothing, nothing but dust. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, referring to recognizing, coming to grips with the reality of, of there being a holy God who demands everything from us, who we should worship and serve. And when the man's laboring conscience conscience tells him that he has done none of these things, serving God, worshiping God, but has from childhood been guilty of foul revolt against the majesty in the heavens, the inner pressure of self-accusation may become too heavy to bear. The gospel can lift this destroying burden from the mind, give beauty for ashes, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. But unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to the man. And until he sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe and no burden. Do we feel that burden, that feeling of unworthiness? Later on in Isaiah, Isaiah writes, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, 
to revive the heart of, sorry, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The word contrite has the idea of being crushed, of being ground to powder. Do we glimpse in our hearts this morning or as we go throughout our Christian walk, do we recognize just how utterly hopeless life is without God? How were it not for God's mercy, it is of the Lord's mercy we are not consumed. Apart from him, we would be ground to nothing. It's only when we come face to face with that reality, that truth, when we feel the weight, when we feel the burden, that we can truly appreciate that burden being lifted, and we can appreciate deliverance being given to us. Apart from God, we are nothing. But as we come into his holy presence and we admit who we are and who we are not, God can talk to us and say, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. God needs a humble and contrite heart to work in and through. Let's continue reading here. Verse 8. I'll read verse 8 through the end of the chapter here. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them. When they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. If we have experienced God's love, God's redemption in our lives this morning, and we really fathom what has been done for us, I find it interesting that God speaks and asks, who shall I send and who will go for us? 
after he has purified Isaiah. And the response of our hearts as we're delivered from sin, as we are put in right standing with God, what do we say? Do we say, here am I, send me? To go from being absolutely nothing to being in danger of destruction and being destroyed, and then to be delivered from that, what more can we say than, you saved me and I'm here? That is the only logical response. So Isaiah says, here am I, send me. He was called after he was purified, after he was made holy. And God wants to use each one of us after we are holy and pure, pure before him. Do people around us know that we are holy? Do they sense something different about us? You've probably been in situations where I know I have going to training schools. Mechanics are kind of a, tend to be a rough bunch of people. And different times, I remember going to a service school, working on a mower, working on a snowplow there at the tech school. And Somebody's wrench slips. Somebody can't figure out an electrical problem. And they swear. Without me saying anything, they'll just turn to me and apologize. Why? What, what did they sense? What did they feel? I, I don't say that for my glory. I, I think you all have had experiences like that too where they realize, they recognize there's something different about this person. And they trust the world around us knows that we have had an encounter with a holy God. And that a holy God is living inside of us. We are the temple of the living God. When others get a glimpse into our lives. What do they see? Do they see God? And do they recognize that whatever's different about this person is something they don't have? Maybe they feel condemned inside or at least recognize that whatever this person has is something to be desired, something to seek for. I trust we're willing to be used of God in those moments and share the gospel as we have opportunity. Ted talked about being ashamed last week when he was here. And our flesh makes it easy to hide. We tend to hide. 
But if we really, really, truly can grasp and get our little minds around how much we have been delivered from, if you were lost on a sinking ship and the Coast Guard came and a man rescued you from the water moments before you were going to go under and not come back up, who would be ashamed to talk about or be seen with the rescuer? None of us would. But yet, we somehow find it hard to speak up for Christ sometimes. And I think, really, that's a result of us not understanding who God is, how holy he is. Closing here, Hebrews 10.28 talks about how a Jew who despised and rejected the Mosaic law died without mercy, it says. And then the verse continues to go on and says, how much worse will it be for those who trample on the name of Christ and view his sacrifice as insignificant? Do we view Christ's sacrifice as significant? We do, do we view him as a holy God as we should? And I'm speaking to myself. I have a lot of growing to do in my understanding of, of how big God is, of how just how holy and sinless and perfect he is. But I want to call us to that journey this morning of seeking God, understanding more about him, recognizing that apart from him we are nothing, and recognizing that holiness for the Christian is not optional. Like Zach was talking about with the armor this morning, we can't just be holy over here and not as much over here. Or let this slide a little bit and do better over here. Holiness is not optional. God is perfect. And he says, be holy as I am holy. It's only by his grace that we can possibly do that. God hates sin. And so must his children. I believe our, our hate and our repulsion for sin is directly tied to how our view of God is, of how holy we feel he is. God has chosen us as his people. Leviticus, talking to the Israelites, coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land. God's just gotten done giving them all these laws and things that they needed to follow. And he says to the Israelites, And ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, Yahweh, the supreme being, am holy. 
and have severed you from other people, that ye should be mine. God has plucked us out of the fire, so to speak. He wants a relationship with each one of us. He's chosen us to be his. And he's saying, be holy, for I am holy. God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What do we do when we encounter that marvelous light? Do we say, woe is me. I am undone. I am nothing apart from you, God. And then as he cleanses us and purifies us, do we say, here am I, send me. Let's bow our heads for prayer.